welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This passage is the benediction that comes at the end of the letter to the Hebrews. To understand this benediction more fully, I think it's important we see it in its context. What is this letter about in the first place? The letter of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. And apparently the persecution was so severe that some of them were considering renouncing their Christian faith and returning to their old religion of Judaism. And their thinking was they could do this and still find acceptance with God. That's what prompted the writing of this letter. It is a response to what these believers were considering. And in this letter, the writer reminds them that what they're doing is futile. He reminds them that no one can find acceptance with God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout this letter, it is one long theological argument against what they were considering doing. And the writer reveals to them, yes, Judaism was a good and beautiful religion. Yes, Judaism was indeed instituted by God from Mount Sinai. But Judaism was never intended to be a permanent remedy for sin. God's purpose for Judaism was that it would point Israel to the coming permanent remedy for sin in the person of Jesus Christ. In this letter, the writer acknowledges to these believers, yes, I know your life has been difficult. And it will continue to be difficult. But not nearly as difficult as it would be if you renounce Jesus Christ. For the only thing that awaits those who reject Christ is the terrifying judgment of God. Well, after exhorting them to remain firm in their faith, to not reject Christ, to not leave the Christian faith, he writes this benediction. And this benediction, I want you to see a couple of things about it. What it is, it's very similar to our benediction that we pronounce every Sunday. It is a pronouncement of a blessing the pronouncement of a blessing over these beleaguered believers. And this blessing is not a prayerful request. It is a prayerful acknowledgement. It is an authoritative declaration of the truth of God's presence, of His favor, and of His activity in the church. This prayer was something these believers could believe in. 
something they could count on in their difficulties. And this prayer is something we can believe in, something we can count on in our walk of faith too. So since it applies to us just as, it must, just as much as it did them, let's dig in and see what this benediction has to say to us. First, I want you to notice that this writer begins his benediction by looking to the God of peace. Now, if there's anything these believers that received this letter, anything they believed it or needed, it was a sense of peace. Now, while our circumstances might never be as severe as it was for these believers, the truth is none of us are immune to the anxieties and the agitations that come from living on planet Earth. In all honesty, in many ways, the deck is stacked against us in finding inner peace. Human society is fraught with all sorts of evil. The evil of man manifests itself in ruthless greed, envy, jealousy, hatred, physical and sexual violence, injustice, and moral perversion. Sometimes the evil of this world attacks us directly, wounding us physically or emotionally or both. And this can have the effect of crushing our sense of peace. But most of the time, the evil of this world just circles around us, brushing against us with, with its assaults and temptations, bombarding us with images and sounds that would rob us of our love of God. And this can have the effect of slowly but surely eroding our sense of peace. But it isn't just the evils perpetrated by our fellow man that can rob us of our peace. The natural world can do that too. Remember, the introduction of sin into the world didn't just impact humanity, it also impacted nature. Part of God's judgment against Adam when he sinned was to pronounce a curse on the earth. Now certainly God in his providence provides us with everything we need to sustain ourselves in this world, but in the midst of fruit and flowers there are also weeds and thorns. Do you remember what God told Adam after he confronted him in the garden after he and Eve sinned. He told Adam, and I'm paraphrasing, that because of their sin, life for the human race would be hard. It would be marked by sweat and pain. And ultimately, all of us would end up returning to the dust of the earth. Here's the reality of things down here. Life circumstances can often be difficult for believers and unbelievers. They can press down on us like a heavy shroud of darkness that blots out any ray of peace. Now this may not be true for you today, but you need to understand all around us, even in the church, there are people who desperately crave but cannot 
find peace in their soul and a quietness in their spirit. But in this benediction, we are reminded that we belong to the God of peace. I lost one of my notes. I'm going to have to read this. We belong to the God of peace. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he had several things to say to his disciples to prepare them for what was coming. This was one of the things that he said to them. This is in John 14, 27. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, Jesus knew his disciples were about to encounter some difficult things. That's understating it. Their world was about to come crashing down around them. These are men who left everything and devoted their entire lives to following Jesus Christ. And now they were about to witness the horror of his arrest and his trial and his execution. And then not long after that, they themselves, all of the apostles, would be arrested and beaten and imprisoned. And ultimately, all but one of them would be martyred for their faith. And I want you to notice, sometimes you wonder, why doesn't God take things away? I don't know. I don't know. But I want you to notice Jesus, when he said this to his disciples, he didn't promise to remove their difficult circumstances. But he did promise to give them his peace in the midst of those difficult circumstances. The Apostle Paul had a lot of things to say about the peace of Christ. The most profound is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This is two verses you're familiar with. Paul wrote this, he said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Here Paul concedes, Hey, there are going to be things in your life that make you anxious. There are things in this world that strike terror in the hearts of anyone who encounters them. Yeah, things that cause anxiety and fear are coming to all of us. But Paul says, even in the midst of that, we can know the peace of Christ that guards our hearts and minds. You know, we believe some pretty silly stuff. This is a promise that confounds... No no wonder pagans don't want to come to Jesus. We believe some things that are unbelievable. We believe that a a man was was killed and buried and then got up and walked again. We believe that you can suffer physically, emotionally, spiritually, and yet still have peace. How is that possible Well, if you're trusting in the world, it isn't possible. The peace that the world gives is contingent on peaceful circumstances. The peace that Christ gives is contingent on His love 
in spite of our circumstances. Well, that begs the question, how do we find this peace of Christ that guards our hearts and minds even when everything around us is falling apart? Well, we see the answer in the rest of this benediction. First, the writer of this benediction would have us see that this inner peace of Christ is predicated on a greater peace. A greater peace that ended the hostility that exists between God and the human race. Now, now most of this world doesn't believe there's any kind of conflict going on between God and humanity. In their minds, we're essentially neutral parties. After all, God is love, right? And we're doing the very best we can down here with what we have, right? So surely there's no conflict. Surely there's no hostility. But there is. There is a conflict, and it has been raging since the Garden of Eden. The Bible declares there is a conflict. And it declares, it informs us the cause of this conflict. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul wrote this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, who is this that is in the flesh? who is hostile to God, who won't obey His law, who can't obey His law, who can't please Him. Who is this? It's us. It's all of us. Every human being living on planet Earth was born with a sinful nature, a sinful nature that we all inherited from Adam, a sinful nature that would not allow us to honor God as we should, to give thanks to God as we should, and most of all, it would not allow us to submit to His sovereign rule over us. Instead, we are all predisposed to love darkness and hate light, to exalt self over God, and to pursue with all our vigor those things that are an affront to God. The Bible has some pretty stark descriptions of our spiritual condition in the eyes of God. The Bible says that we were all born in sin, that we were slaves to sin. The Bible also says that by our very nature, we were children of wrath. Now here's the scary part about this conflict that exists between the human race and God. This conflict doesn't just flow one way. It's not just that we who are born with this sinful nature are hostile to God. On the other side of this conflict, God is keeping meticulously perfect records of every single offense we commit against him and he is storing up his wrath 
against us and all our sins. You want to know how this conflict ends? It ends in judgment. And it's coming in a fury of fire. But then at God's appointed time, He sent His Son into the world to erase the record of our sins. And not just the record of our sins, but the debt that those sins incurred as well. He took all of our sins upon Himself and went to the cross. He assumed the sin of Adam that is deeply embedded in our spiritual DNA. And He took all of our personal sins as well. And He went to the cross. And then He suffered the outpouring of the fullness of the wrath of God against our sins. He suffered the punishment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And for all who would come to Him and receive Him and His sacrifice, the hostility ends. And peace is established. Peace with God. The writer also of this benediction wants us to see that God has provided visible confirmation that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to procure this peace between us and God. And this visible confirmation is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you a question. What if Jesus had not been raised? What if after His crucifixion and they laid Him in the tomb, He stayed there? And He and His pre-incarnate essence returned to His throne in glory? Huh. We'd be left to wonder. We'd be left to wonder, was He really the Son of God? Did He really, really pay the penalty for my sins? Or was He just another man who lived and died and who is laying in the ground decomposing? We'd be left to wonder. But God did not leave us to wonder. In the great display of His power, He raised Jesus Christ up from the dead confirming that Jesus was who He said He was and that He accomplished what He said He came to accomplish, which was to give His life as a ransom for many. Then I want you to see the completeness of this greater peace. Hostility has been replaced with friendship. For the one who died for our sins was raised to be the great shepherd of our souls. He now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Do you know what he's doing? Well, besides running the universe, do you know what he's doing? The primary thing he's doing, the Bible says that he ever lives to intercede for us. Do you get that? The God of the universe, the God who made everything and owns everything and governs everything, is our personal advocate. And if we would let him, 
the great shepherd of our souls would make us lie down in green pastures. He would lead us beside still waters. He would restore our souls. There's one more thing about this greater peace that Christ procured for us. And this one is filled with mystery. It is really difficult to get the mind wrapped around, but we're going to try. I don't get it, but I'm going to present it anyway. In eternity past, before the existence of time or space or matter, before there were angels singing or galaxies spinning, when all there was was God and nothing else, there existed an eternal covenant. This is a covenant that has no beginning. This is the part that I can't get. I, I, don't under, I can understand no end. I have a hard time understanding no beginning. This is a covenant that has no beginning. This is a covenant that always was and always is and always will be. Well, what is this covenant? This is a covenant within the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to bring to Christ all those the Father has given Him. The, the cross, the plan of the cross was not a reactionary move on God's part. Nor was it ever an afterthought in the mind of God. God was never caught off guard by the introduction of sin into the world and had, had to think on the fly and come up with a plan B. No. The plan of the cross was always in the mind of God. And your inclusion in that plan was always in the mind of God. Oh, it's important that we understand. Even if we don't understand it, it's important that we accept it. You don't have to comprehend everything the Word of God says, but you do have to apprehend it. And here it is. You, if you're in Christ today, you were always in the mind of God. You were always known by God. You were always loved by God. And your salvation was always prepared for you. Well, back to the question that I asked earlier. How do we find this peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds even when everything around us is falling apart? Well, here comes the, the answer in a bit. Do you, and I'm going to say something here, and I, and I know you good Presbyterians are going to be upset with it, but all I'm asking is a little patience. Don't jump up and run immediately. Give me time to finish. Here's how you find the inner peace of Christ. The inner peace of Christ comes through our goodness. Let me say that again. The inner peace of Christ comes through our goodness. 
Do you remember God's estimation of his creation of Adam and Eve? That was on the sixth day of creation. Well, let's back up. Day one, after God reviewed what he'd done, it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, five, it was good. But at the end of day six, after he created man, it was very good. Well, why was it very good? Because Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Now, I don't know what all that means. Anybody else tells you they know what all that means to be made in the image of God? Mm, don't believe them. But we do know a few things about being made in the image of God. First, God gave Adam and Eve eternal souls. No other creature received that. They were given an eternal soul. They were also given intellect. They had the power to reason. They were given emotion. Most importantly, they were given volition, a will. Adam and Eve were created as free moral agents. And they were created for a purpose. And their purpose was to model God. Their purpose was to reflect the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of God to the rest of creation. And in the beginning, they did that. They were good. They were righteous. And they lived in perfect harmony with their Creator. But that they sinned and they messed all that up. They didn't just mess it up for them, they messed it up for us too. Now we today still bear the image of God. But it's been corrupted. It's been twisted. It hasn't been destroyed, but it's been severely defaced by the sin of Adam and our sin as well. We're not what we're supposed to be. Oh, there are still glimmers of the image of God in the world today. Um, when someone risks their life to save the life of a perfect stranger, when someone fosters a child in their home, when someone volunteers at a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or a nursing home, when someone pauses, takes time out of their day to help the weak or infirmed up, some steps. Yeah, there are still some good acts in this world, but for every act of goodness, there are hundreds, there are thousands of acts of selfishness and brutality and perversion. When we think of our salvation, what we normally think of, and there's nothing wrong with this, we usually think of what our salvation produced for us. We think about the forgiveness of sins that we've received. We think about being spared from God's wrath. We think about the promise of eternal life and resurrected, glorified bodies. Yes, but there is more to our salvation than just what it produces for us. It's also about what it produces in us. You see, God saved us not to just, not to just spare us from the torments of hell, but he saved us to restore in us what was lost in the garden. He saved us so that we might, as it was in the beginning, reflect the holiness and the righteousness 
and the goodness of God to the rest of the world. And if you are in Christ, you have been given the enablements to do just that. You have been, you have been given a regenerated mind and a new heart and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you can have a life, not perfectly, but mostly, that reflects who God is to the rest of the world. And that is the secret to receiving the inner peace of Christ. Christ gives us His inner peace when we pursue the purpose that He ordained for us. Christ gives us His inner peace when we are seeking to do His will. He gives us His inner peace when we are doing those things that are pleasing to Him. He gives us His inner peace when we are obedient. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments then your peace would have been like a river. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for in it we learn who you are, what you require of us. We thank you for the preaching of your word, for it is through the hearing of word that our faith is increased. So bless this word. Bless it to our hearts and minds. Help us that we might apply it to ourselves, that we might love you more, that we might serve you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m., our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.